I'd like for us to stand for the reading of God's Word, to honor God's Word this morning. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me read as you follow along. <clears throat> but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and now we willingly place ourselves under its authority in our lives and trust that the Spirit of God would be our teacher and that we would be changed even by some small degree into the mind and the heart and the likeness of Christ for having been here. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Please be seated. <clears throat> How many of you have ever been lied to? Show of hands. Every hand up. How many of you have ever told a lie? Every hand up. Have you ever imagined what the world would be like if everyone always told the truth all the time about all things, it's virtually impossible for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we live in a world filled with lies. This morning we're going to be looking at the problem that Peter addresses in terms of false teachers, people who essentially tell lies about the most important things in life. Every day, each one of you depends upon others to tell the truth. From the smallest things to the biggest things, you depend upon newscasters to tell you the truth. You're hoping that politicians are telling you the truth. When you buy a used car, you really, really are hoping that that salesman is telling you the truth. 
When you buy a house, you're hoping that the real estate agent is telling you the truth about the foundation and the crack that you see in the side wall and whether or not they're termites. Those of you who are married, you depend upon your spouse telling you the truth and not hiding stuff from you. You trust that your children are telling you the truth when you ask them, what happened again? We rely on the truth all the time. Your well-being is dependent upon truth. Your health is dependent upon the truth of your doctor telling you the correct diagnosis. Your eternal destiny is dependent upon someone telling you the truth. It can hinge on whether or not the person standing up behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning, as good of a speaker as he may be and as handsome as he is, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And if you ever go looking for a new church where you have to move to another town, you want to make sure you're going someplace where you will be told the truth. The Apostle Peter is talking about the problem being that there are those who intentionally do not tell the truth. False teachers, false prophets. It's one of the primary reasons why Peter wrote this second epistle, was to alert those to whom he was writing of the existence of those who were telling, not telling the truth about God, not telling the truth about how to live a life in response to God's holiness and righteousness. See, Peter was reminding them, and God was reminding us through Peter's writings of something critically important as you navigate your way through life. And it's simply this, friends. There is one true gospel. There are many false gospels. There is one true God. There are many false gods. There is a right way, and there are many wrong ways. There are true messengers sent by God, and there are many false messengers who have not been sent by God. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, there have been lie-tellers, deceivers, masters of deception, those who spread falsehoods about God, about man, about life, about death, about heaven, about hell, and everything else. I mean, look at the way it got started in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Satan was the originator of destructive heresy that Peter talks about in chapter 2. That's where it began. And talk about wreaking havoc in the world with just one small package of lies. You won't die. Your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. Sort of the triumvirate of lies. And virtually all of the lies that have been told throughout history 
by false teachers are variations essentially of those three to varying degrees. You won't die. No need to worry about death. Death is no big deal. One way or another, you'll be fine when this life is over. Your eyes will be opened. You'll, it's, it's about enlightenment. It's about human knowledge. You'll know your own human potential. The sky's the limit as to what you can do. It's all about you achieving your dreams. You can have your best life now. You can, you will. Your eyes will be opened. And then lastly, you'll be like God. You will be like God. I have to tell you that I was taken aback when I saw the title of Joel Osteen's latest book published in 2016. It caught my attention. It's all in the title, The Power of I Am. Two words that will change your life today. Do you know how God identified himself to Moses? I am that I am. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But you see, for Joel Osteen and many others, it's not about God, it's about who I am. It's about me. My success, my glory, my honor, my fame, my wealth. And that's just one contemporary example of false teaching. And so that's the way it all got started, back in the Garden of Eden. All false teaching that is in the world today originated there, and it continues on. So Peter says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people. He's referring back to the people of Israel, the people of the Old Testament. False prophets arose among the people. You recall, perhaps, Moses issued a warning to the Israelites. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. That was one of the first warnings about false prophets and false teachers. Jeremiah 27, I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name. Such a critical five words. I have not sent them. They, are, they have come of their own accord, or they have been sent by someone else. Ezekiel 13, my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. And then you get to the New Testament, Jesus warned the people, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so he sticks with the sheep imagery, the shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, uh, you got the flock, and a couple more sheep come prancing in. And they fit right in. They fit right in. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
No wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so don't expect false teachers to come looking like a false teacher. Expect a false teacher to come looking like a teacher of truth. And therein lies the need for God's people to be able to discern from the word of God as to whether or not a message that is being preached, written about, blogged about, posted about is true. And there is where the responsibility lies with the sheep to know whether or not the message is coming from the shepherd or not. John, in his first epistle, sounds the alarm as well. 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And he has to say that because you're going to be tempted to believe every spirit. He wouldn't say that unless the temptation was there for God's people to be gullible, naive, non-discerning. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets have been sent. Many false prophets have been, have been apportioned throughout the globe. Not a few, not a handful, not dozens, not even hundreds, thousands. I, I, I may be wrong. I get the impression there may be even more false prophets than true prophets. More false teachers than true teachers. Thus the need for discernment. And Peter says, just as there will be false teachers among you. And so Peter is saying, God's people should expect this. Don't expect otherwise. Expect them to come. Expect them to come looking like Christian messengers. They will use scripture. They will use the Bible. They will have all the markings and trappings of being Christian. If someone comes along preaching, teaching, writing, blogging, singing, advocating through the media, some message that sounds really appealing, really loving, really compassionate, really Christian, but is it contrary to sound doctrine? Is it adding to the scriptures or is it taking away from the scriptures? That's what you need to know. Has this person added something to God's book? Has this person taken something away from God's book? Then Peter lays out their characteristics. Let me walk through some of these that I see in this passage. Things to watch out for that will be true of false teachers, to varying degrees. Not that, not that any one teacher necessarily will have all of these, but probably quite a few of them. Number one, they disseminate destructive heresy. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The word secretly, it means to slip in without being seen. Uh, to sneak in under false pretense. So someone slips in without being noticed. 
they are present, but for a different reason than you thought they were there for. As I thought about this one, I couldn't help but think about the Boston Marathon bombing, where three people died and 260 people were injured. And it all happened, friends, because two young men slipped in without being noticed. Thousands of people, it just took two, who slipped in without being noticed. And the destruction that they wrought. The Sarnayev brothers weren't there to cheer on the runners. They were there to injure and kill men, women, and children. They were right there with all the other people. Who would have ever guessed that their mission was destruction? I use that as an analogy. Peter's telling us that false teachers bring their teaching secretly. Deceptive. They will often be disguised as one of the crowd. One of God's people. And what they teach will be disguised as being good. Secondly, they deny Christ, Peter says. Verse 1, even denying the master who bought them. They disseminate destructive heresies. They deny Christ. Now, the question that I had at this point was, how do you deny Christ yet do it secretly? It's a pretty good question, don't you think? How do you deny Christ yet do it secretly? Well, I think I know the answer. By appearing to be embracing Christ while rejecting key elements of his identity. You embrace his humanity, you deny and reject his deity. You embrace him as Savior, you deny him as Lord. You embrace his love, you deny his wrath. You embrace his forgiveness, you deny his righteousness and his holiness. You see, you essentially make a Jesus in your own image. You're trying to come up with a gospel that fits who you are. You're trying to come up with a Savior who fits your lifestyle, a Jesus who fits what you really would like him to be like. And then, at the end of the day, you've denied Christ. It's like taking me and saying, well, I really like this about Gary, but I don't like this part of him. And Jesus says, you can't do that to me. Maybe you can do that with people in your world. You can't do that with me. Denying the master, denying the sovereign, denying the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a resistance and a refusal to acknowledge Christ in his fullness, his position, both in the universe and over the affairs of man, but especially perhaps denying his position and role over my affairs, my life. He can be Lord of the universe, but I deny and reject him to be Lord of my life. 
There's a denial that he will judge the world. There's a denial that he will judge the living and the dead. And so for Peter, this one characteristic of false teachers, I think, might be of paramount importance in Peter's mind. They're denying the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. They're denying the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. He says, the master who bought them, the master who paid the price for their redemption. And since he bought you, he now has rightful ownership of your life. The best possible owner of your life that you could imagine. You would want no one else to own you than Christ. And yet there's a resistance to have anyone own me except me. And in the process, we deny Christ his lordship. And friends, I would just say, how many preachers and churches and messengers are there today who preach the love of Jesus but say nothing of his lordship? You see, denying the master who bought them does not necessarily mean a flat-out rejection of Christ. I have members of my extended family who have rejected Christ. That's not, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think denying the master doesn't necessarily mean a flat-out rejection, but rather a reconfiguring of Jesus. A Jesus who fits my lifestyle. A Jesus who does not call me to be holy. A Jesus who does not call me to change how I do things, my sexual mores, my, my, my sexual standards, of my, my ideas of right and wrong. No, I want a Jesus who is there to love me. I want a Jesus who is there for me. I'm not sure if I want all of Jesus. Jude said, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert, there's the changing, twisting, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Isn't that amazing? You pervert the grace of God into something that will serve me sensually. Basically, pleasing to my senses pleasing to my appetites. I want the grace of God to satisfy my sensual needs. That's just bizarre, isn't it? And yet we do that. We do that. And we not, should not be hasty to point fingers at others until we look at ourselves and say, where am I using the grace of God to satisfy myself sensually, my appetites, my pleasures, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, they're driven by greed, Peter says, verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is really interesting. Peter says that one of the primary driving forces behind much false teaching isn't their sense of spiritual enlightenment, isn't their... It's not they're coming up with ideas about God that they just feel compelled to share with others. No, it's greed. For a lot of false teachers, it is greed that they use 
In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will use false words to exploit you for the sake of their greed. Their lust for money. See, friends, there are false teachers today who really don't care if you know God or don't know God. There are false teachers today who really don't care if you go to heaven or go to hell. There are false teachers today who care about one thing and one thing only. They care about your money. And they will exploit you with the craft of a message or the writing of a book to fill their pockets. It's greed that fuels their engine. It is greed. It is their insatiable appetite for worldly riches that gets them up in the morning. And I don't have to tell you that there are false teachers today who talk about Jesus, who quote the Bible, but only to the degree that it supports their their message of personal success and prosperity. There are these teachers who live in multi-million dollar homes and fly the world in multi-million dollar jets and have personal net worths in the the tens of millions of dollars. And Peter has warned us, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And they need to be called out by God's people to spare other people from following their heresies. Number four, they despise authority. Verse 10, jump down to verse 10. Those who despise authority. Despise means to detest, loathe, hate, feel contempt for. They despise authority. So they not only deny the idea of Christ being sovereign, they hate the idea of Christ being sovereign. They detest the notion that they are not masters of their own universe. They detest the idea. And friends, understand, this is not just true of false teachers. This is a predominant characteristic of just people in general since the fall. We want, our own, we want autonomy. We, generally, we despise authority. We don't like being told that anyone is over us. And yet, when you look at the person of Jesus Christ, do you know what... All of the miracles of Jesus displayed his authority. His power, yes. His authority. When he calmed storms and told the wind to be still, when he multiplied, and when he turned water into wine and multiplied loaves and fish, it was his authority over nature. When he healed people's bodies, it was authority over the physical body that you inhabit. When he cast out demons, it was his authority over the spiritual forces of darkness and Satan himself. When he healed the paralytic and they said, where do you get the authority to do this? He said, are you more worried about my authority to heal? Do you not know I have the authority to forgive sins? Christ's authority. And then you get to the Great Commission and he says it himself. 
all authority in heaven, all authority on earth has been given to me. And so you can despise it or you can embrace it. You can despise the idea that Christ is Lord, rightful sovereign of your life, or you can, you can embrace it or you can reject it. See, one of the most critical elements in being a follower of Jesus, and this, this, is, what, this is what distinguishes, distinguishes people who profess Christ from those who embrace and follow Christ, is whether or not you embrace the idea and you accept the idea that he has authority over your life. as your Lord. The fifth thing that Peter tells us about false teachers, they, def- they are defiled by un- ungodly passions. Verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions. So in addition to greed being one of the driving forces in the lives of false teachers, there's also the lust of defiling passion. Verse 2 refers to their sensuality. It's referring to a lifestyle. I believe it's referring to a lifestyle that is essentially marked by immorality. sexual immorality, to be specific. There were people in the first century who were using the grace of God as a means of justifying lifestyles of sexual promiscuity. See, many false teachers throughout history have devised theological systems They've come up with teachings that essentially provide a legitimized means of indulging in fleshly lusts. If I can come up with a theology that allows me to continue to do my own whatever I want to do with my body, that's exactly what they tried to do. And so you have, in the Old Testament, you have male and female cult prostitution that was practiced by the nations that the Lord drove out before the the Israelites, where it was believed that having sex with the temple-appointed prostitute would increase your fertility or the fertility of the soil for your crops. You've got Joseph Smith's doctrines that allowed and taught the practice of polygamy in order to populate heaven. And friends, you have those today who are professing Christ and yet advocate and open and affirming posture toward virtually any and all standards of sexual conduct. It's a way to have Christ on your lips. And yet, giving yourself the freedom to do as you please. The sixth characteristic that he points out here is that they draw a crowd. False teachers draw a crowd. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many. Now, understand, there are good, true teachers who draw large crowds. Spurgeon drew large crowds. Billy Graham drew large crowds. Some of your megachurch pastors today are rock solid in what they teach. So that's not, that's, not, that's not the issue. But understand, 
don't be so naive as to think that just because someone is drawing a large crowd means that they're okay. There are many false teachers who draw huge crowds, tens of thousands of people. I think Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew 7, where he said, Enter by, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. What did Peter say? Many will follow their sensuality. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. John MacArthur writes, Credit is due to false teachers for the popularity of the wide road as they usher people on to the broad way and encourage them not to look back. Their message of independence, personal freedom, self-exaltation is inherently appealing to fallen human hearts who would rather serve themselves than submit to Christ. And so false teachers, many of them are notoriously good at drawing crowds because they are, they are preying on depraved human nature. And if you prey on man's depravity, you will always find an audience. If I can continue to be pretty much the way I am and at the same time bring in some religion, that's a very appealing place to go. Then Peter talks about their destiny. And he uses a lesson from biblical history to drive home the reality Judgment's coming. To those to whom he was writing, maybe they were wondering, well, are these false teachers ever going to be judged? I mean, why, do, why are they being given so much freedom to do their thing? I mean, we're in the 21st century. Why are these false teachers being given so much time and freedom? Peter says it's coming, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, imminent. Swift means imminent, impending. And again, we're on God's calendar Destruction, swift destruction. Destruction means eternal damnation. Now in Jesus' day, believe it or not, the worst fall teachers of his day were Jewish scribes and Pharisees. The most religious people of the day. And they were false teachers. They'd been given all the blessings of being God's chosen people through whom the Messiah would come. But then when the Messiah came, they rejected him. They denied him. They despised him. They hated him. And Jesus said to them, Matthew 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers. And so he, he labels them according to their likeness to their father, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Children of the devil, you serpents. You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Peter says in verse 3, their condemnation from long ago isn't idle. Their destruction isn't asleep. In other words, just because, just because it looks like maybe destruction is taking a nap, no, it's, it's, it's there. It's on the calendar. It's coming. And then Peter uses some courtroom logic to me, he, he does an if-then. If, 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 then. See, there were those who were saying, Peter, it's not going to happen. 
this judgment you're talking about, Christ returning a second time, just as there are those today who teach that in the end, love wins, everyone will be saved, how could a loving God condemn anyone to hell? Peter rolls out three historical events involving God's judgment and in effect says to those who claim there will be no judgment, where in the world do you get that idea? Do you not know history? For example, the angels. If God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, he's referring to the angels who joined Lucifer in a great rebellion against God before the creation of the world. Ever since his rebellion and fall, Satan's domain is the earth and the atmosphere surrounding the earth. That's why he's referred to as the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air, why his legion of fallen angels are referred to as the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But ever since they rebelled, their judgment has been set by God. Jude says in verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Peter says, do you remember what happened to the angels? Secondly, do you remember what happened to the people of Noah's day? If he didn't spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, and so Peter's saying, have you forgotten the flood? Does the name Noah ring any bells? You see, in referencing that fateful chapter in world history, Peter was just simply taking his cue from Jesus. When Jesus told his disciples about his second coming, Jesus said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until that day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, the people, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so Peter says, that's my second piece of historical evidence. My first was the angels. My second piece of evidence that I call to the witness stand are the people of Noah's day. And the third would be the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do, those, do the names of those two cities ring any bells for you? Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And again, Jude makes the same reference to the two cities that were destroyed because they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, all because they had rejected God. And so Peter is simply saying, if these weren't spared, angels cast into hell, people of Noah's day destroyed by the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah turned to ashes, then it is safe to assume that false teachers won't be spared either. Logic doesn't allow you to go anyplace else. If they were all judged for their unrighteousness, then one can assume that God knows how to do this. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day that he is appointed for judgment. And so it's almost like he's saying, relax. God's got this under control. 
But then he flips it over and gives us our reassurance. He reassures those of us who do love the Lord, those who have been called according to his purpose, those who are adding to their faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control godliness and to godliness brotherly affection and to brotherly affection love. Assurance for those who are persevering in the faith and who love Christ and are not denying Christ, don't despise his authority to be the Lord of my life. They're embracing not a part of Christ, but say, I, I want to embrace and give my allegiance to all of Christ. Peter says, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment, but he also knows how to take care of the righteous. If Noah and his family were spared, if Lot and his family were spared, be assured, people of God, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And I would say that to you this morning. God knows how to separate the righteous from the wicked. God knows how to separate the sheep from the goats. God knows how to separate the redeemed from unrepentant sinners. God knows how to separate his kids from the children of the devil. God will administer perfect justice. And so the words from Peter this morning are words of warning, words of exhortation, brothers and sisters. Are you making, going back several messages, are you making every effort to add to your faith? Are you in his word so that when false words come your way, you will immediately be able to discern and say, that's not true. Because just last week, I read in this passage. Pray for one another. Pray for discernment. Pray that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here at West Hills. Protect one another. Watch out for each other. When, when, when someone says that they've been reading such and such or watching so and so, and you aren't so sure it's the wisest thing for them to do, engage in a conversation with them to where you can explore both the messenger and the message according to the truths of God's word. Amen? Amen. We're going to pray together. Scott's going to come and lead us in some closing worship. Let's bow together, please. Again, please take just a moment to respond from your spirit to God. It may be a word of thanks and praise. It may be a word of submission of your will to his. It may be a word of confession of sin that you have been denying Christ in some fashion. It may be a petition asking for the Spirit of God to help you in some way. Talk to him right now.
Thank you, Lord, once again for your word. And I trust that it will be your words that the Spirit of God will sink into our hearts and not mine. We long to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We are your people only by your grace. Please forgive us, Father, when we try to make your son into something that he is not. Help us, Spirit of God, to honor Christ in all his fullness. May we willingly and joyfully live under his authority. And may you give us discernment as we walk through this life with so many messages and so many messengers that we could separate that which is true from that which is not. And in the course of it all, might come to love you more and know you better and live for your glory. We pray in the name of our Lord and our Savior, our Master, our King, Jesus. God's people agreed by saying,